0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello listeners, welcome back to New Books on Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Agat a host of the channel. Today we will be talking with Shelly Fairweather-Vega, editor and translator of Amanat Women's Writing from Kazakhstan. Shelly is a professional Russian to English translator and a Uzbek to English translator. Aside from the anthology we will be discussing today, she has been translated she has translated stories by the Uzbek writer Hamid Ismailov and the Kazakh musicologist Tulashbek Asenkulov. She translated and edited Amanat with Zaure Batayeva, herself a writer, translator for Kazakh and cultural commentator. Shali, thanks a lot for being um, here with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, that that's that's really a pleasure. Uh, just to that we have a sense of place for our conversation today. Could you begin by describing a little bit uh, where you are calling from? I am in Seattle, Washington, in the Pacific Northwest,
0: of the United States, where it's nice and rainy, as typical for this time of year.
1: <laughs> nice. Um, and so now that we situate ourselves, uh, to to start it off. To to start us off, I'd love to have you read a few paragraphs from one of the pieces uh, that you translated for the anthology. And that will be really great if you could read it in the original Russian or Kazakh form first and then um, do your English translation. Sure. Um,
0: I, I thought it would be nice to read one of the more Kazakh Russian stories in our collection. So I'll read you a couple of paragraphs of um, Zira Naruzvaeva's um, long essay called The Best compere. Um Maybe I'll read you uh, a couple of paragraphs in Russian first, and then I'll read you um, the section in English, and then I'll tell you um, why I picked this selection. Would that work for you? All right. So this is the, from the section of um, The Best computer called Astrakhan Shashay. Ее чтение Корана с раскостистым «Ай, шатани, ра, жени!» Наверное, останется для меня в этом несведущей, но мотивной, так как именно она читала молитвы у нас дома, за праздничным Астраханом. Эжи особенно выделяла ее среди своих подруг. За возраст, за знание Корана наизусть, за трудную субу, и умение смириться, «Тебе», как говорят казахи. И еще, она была из Астрахани. И принадлежала к тому же роду, что именно. Она была не только вдовой, как остальные, но и пережила всех своих теней, а, всех своих детей в числом тринадцать. И кое-кто за глаза называла ее Жал Маус, ожирающая прорва. Жила она самими своих внуков, которые дважды развелся из-за нежелания жен ухаживать за. Пепель престорвали свои крови. В третий раз он решил не искушать судьбу и метался между двумя домами, сам обхаживая девяностолетнюю бабушку. Иногда она срывалась из запоя в пьяном гневе обвинения ее в том, что в свои кететиситии только-только В такое время его раздражала даже религиозность бабушки, и за него. Glazami, daily on Evil I'll read you the section in English. The way she recited the Quran with her drawn out Ah Shaytani Rajami" will probably always seem like the standard way to me, um, as someone with no particular knowledge of that art. She was the one who recited the prayers around the feast table at our house on holidays. Ajay singled her out especially from among all her friends for her age, for the fact that she had memorized the entire Quran, for the difficult fate she had lived out and learned to make peace with. Tao was what the Kazakhs called it. Plus, she was from Astrahan, which we all pronounce the old way, Astarhan, and she belonged to the same clan as we did. Not only was she a widow like all the others, but she had outlived all her children, thirteen in number, and behind her back some people called her a jamoiz, a type of monster known as a bottomless pit. She lived with one of her grandsons, who had twice been divorced due to his wife's lack of interest in catering to their ancient grandmother-in-law. The third time he married, he decided not to tempt fate, and he traveled back and forth between two homes, taking care of his 90-year-old grandmother himself. Sometimes he broke down when he had something to drink, and in a drunken rage, he blamed her for the fact that he was only just becoming a father at the age of 50. At times like those, even his grandmother's piety infuriated him, and she refused to answer him, just praying silently for him instead, looking at him with those gray eyes, misted with age, which seemed swollen behind the thick lenses of her glasses. In fact, of course, he was a wonderful grandson, and with him taking care of her she lived to be almost a hundred, never wanting for a thing. It was the nineteen nineties, and Master Hanche's age made me think about how human life measured up against history. Not only had she been born before the October Revolution, she had been a grown up young woman by the standards of the time when it happened. Her lifetime covered the Civil War, collectivization, World War II, the Thaw, and God only knew what else. Astorhan Shashe was tall and thin and could no longer walk unassisted, although she kept her own house and rolled out the dough with her own feeny hands. And when her grandson wasn't at home, they usually sent me to fetch her to our house for a visit. It took us about 15 minutes to walk over from the building next door, and she told me all kinds of stories while carefully feeling her way with her cane. When Ajay left us, I brought Astorhan Shashe to our home for the wake, and after that, on Fridays, I went to see her so she could recite from the Quran in her memory. She and I sat by a table near a window, and she told me that my Ajay used to come by on Fridays just like this. And when she was going home, she always turned around in the courtyard outside and waved goodbye. But She lifted her bony hand and showed me exactly how Ajay had waved to her. For some reason, it was very important to her, and she told me about that every time I saw her. Sometimes Esther Han Chachet demonstrated a truly childlike naivete. "'Once she told me of a dream she had. "'Her mother was standing there dressed all in white "'and waving a hand, summoning her. "'What do you think the dream might mean?' she asked me. "'Then she went on. "'I don't even remember what my mother looked like. "'She died a long time ago, before the revolution, "'and her image has been washed from my memory. "'But I know it was her. "'I was angry at her, you know. "'When I was little, there was a terrible infection in our owl, "'and all the children in our family died from it "'except me and my little brother.' One evening, Mama tucked me into bed crossways at my brother's feet. By morning, he was dead, but I survived. I could never forgive my Mama for that. After that dream, the one where she, the, she saw her mother calling her, Astrahan Shache lived several more years. That's the end of that. Mm-hmm.
1: It, it was, thank you, thanks a lot for reading that. It was really nice to hear the, the Russian form as well. Um, and could you explain me a little bit how and why did you pick? This piece in particular.
0: Yes, this is um, the best computer is one of my favorite uh, parts of the whole Amanat collection. And it's um, really maybe the heart of the book. Um, Zyrona Rizbaeva is one of the most um, represented authors in our collection. Um, she's um, a mythologist herself. She studies Kazakh mythology and world mythology. Um, which is an area that not many people have paid much attention to. So that already makes her unique. Um, and then she's got this storytelling flair. So this this essay, Best Came Here, is is um, sort of her, her uh, tribute to um, the old women that kind of preserved Kazakh culture and kept it going through all the tumultuous changes that have happened in Kazakhstan over the past 100 years or more. Um, the title of Best Compure means five old women, um, and she's kind of imagining this as a, a pantheon sort of of goddesses and thunder grandmothers, as, as she says in the piece. Um, so the essay is um, made up of uh, little portraits of individual um, women, um, the author's grandmother's age, their um, grandmother's friends and peers, um, who have been transplanted out of history, out of their rural setting, out of their old lifestyles into the big city um, of Almaty. Um, where they have a new kind of urban lifestyle, where their children and their grandchildren are living a completely different life than the one um, in which they were raised, um, and the stories are about how they how they adapt or don't adapt, um, how successfully they can do that, and, and what they make of themselves, um, um, and about uh, the author's relationship with them. She she kind of jokes about herself that she felt closer to these um, these grandmas, these women of this older generation, than to her own peers. Maybe she's an old woman at heart.
1: And, and is that why you say, because when, when you introduced your piece today, you said that it was the more Kazakh of your Russian text. Could you explain a little bit more to our listeners what you mean by that? Sure.
0: Um, Kazakhstan is a really a multicultural place. Um, thanks to a settlement of you know, ethnic Russians, um, even before the Soviet Union formed, and then forced resettlement of Russians and other ethnic groups into Kazakhstan um, by, um, by Stalin and, and uh, throughout the Soviet era, really. But of course, there's, there's this indigenous population there all along, the Kazakhs and nomadic people um, with a different kind of literary history, cultural history, mythology, um, everything. Um, And today, Kazakhstan, uh, I read recently, actually, that Kazakhs were a minority in Kazakhstan until um, just about the same time the Soviet Union fell apart in about 1991. It was only then that Kazakhstan, the Kazakhs became um, more than 50 percent of the population of sort of their own republic. Um, um, And now, of course, they they still are an independent Kazakhstan today. But this mix of cultures remains. So someone like Zira, who is very embedded in Kazakh culture and knows so much about the history um, on a personal and academic level, uh, chooses to write in Russian most of the time in the Russian language, even though her Kazakh is good. um, She helped me study Kazakh when I was learning it, um, which was a great pleasure. But um, uh, she still writes in Russian. That's the easiest for her. So she tells these very Kazakh stories about very Kazakh people in Russian, Um, um, which is a uh, you know a lot of a lot of people do that in Kazakhstan but more and more there's also plenty of Kazakh language writers and we're we're translating those too which is what we tried to do with Amanat
1: and and do you have also at the opposite Russian people um, who we will be writing in Kazakh I mean Russian from Kazakhstan who oh, will be, be writing in Kazakh
0: that's much more rare as far as I know yeah, there's a trend now. Um, Russians, um, ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan, learning Kazakh, studying it. I think it's partly a reaction to um, bad behavior by Russia, the Russian Federation, in the world. Um, they're trying to um, separate themselves and kind of embrace Kazakhstan more fully as their their home. So it's an interesting trend to watch.
1: That that's really interesting. And how how did you manage all the challenge of because, for example, in in the piece that you just gave us. Um, there was some, there were some words that were actually in Kazakh, Ege, for example, I know it's, um, it's grandmother, right? If I'm not mistaken. Um, and so how did you manage to, to, yeah, to answer to this challenge, to translate from central Asian languages and cultures and to mix both the Russian and the Kazakh cultures? Yeah, that was the real
0: challenge of the whole book. Um, and we thought it was very important to make sure that we conveyed these um, these foreign terms. So both the Kazakh terms and Russian terms um, in these stories would be foreign to the average English reader, we figured. And we wanted to make sure we didn't treat one set of words as something more exotic or something harder to understand than the other set. Um, so in Aminat, um, none of the foreign words are metallics, um, which is a sort of convention in English. And... Um, the goal being not to single those words out as as strange. Um, um, But we wanted to keep them, of course. So some things we um, explain in the text. Um, I think I added an extra explanation in there um, once or twice about different terms. Um, But we try to make those explanations as subtle as possible. So not um, highlighting them with like a footnote. So you have to move your eyes to the bottom of the page and learn something educational, right? But just explain them smoothly within the text so it seems like a natural part of the story. Um, And the word ajay, we don't explain at all. I think it starts at the very beginning of the story and it um, continues throughout. So by the time you get to the end of the best computer, hopefully ajay is just part of our English vocabulary now and it seems like the most natural word in the world.
1: That that sounds really nice to do, and also because, as you say, for most of the people, at least in I mean, in English and, and French-speaking also countries, um, Central Asian languages is just this really weird thing, really, really far away that we don't really think about. Um, so it's really nice the way you are actually approaching it and and sharing um, knowledge about it, um, and and I, I was wondering as it is not that traditional to study, um, Russian and Kazakh, especially, uh, how did you yourself, uh, get in, get involved with Central Asian, uh, languages, uh, and culture?
0: Sure. Um, I started studying Russian, um, as an undergraduate. Um, I was studying history and the cold war. And I thought, Russian would be a useful language if I was going to go into historical research something like that. I ended up not doing that ever, Um, but then by graduate school, I was still interested very much in the region. I took classes in Central Asian politics, economics and things like that. Um, And then I noticed they were um, offering uh, grant money to study Uzbek um, at my university. So for very practical purposes, I, I took up Uzbek and funded my master's degree that way. Um, but of course, uh, you know I couldn't just like study it and take the money and run. I fell in love with the language, with the culture, with the literature that I was reading in those beginning Uzbek courses, um, and began translating from Uzbek as well as from Russian. So Uzbek was my my gateway Central Asian language, so to speak. Um, and later on, um, I started uh, meeting these uh, Kazakh, Kazakhstani authors. Wanting to translate what they had written to, so I started studying Kazakh as well. Kazakh and Uzbek are very close; they're both Turkic languages, and um, on the page, they they look similar. So I can stumble my way through most Kazakh texts now. Um, conversation skills are a different matter.
1: Um, yeah, it's a step by step thing. I am myself learning, so I I feel okay. you. <laughs> it <laughs> yeah, is. It, takes time. <laughs> it is something, um, and and yeah. Um, so I I was so you, you just said that the, the Uzbek um, helped you to understand what was um, going on in in Kazakh text um, and I was wondering also because your book is a mix between Russian and, and Kazakh text did you notice any differences on team on style uh, between the Russian pieces and the Kazakh ones
0: there's a little bit I um... I hesitate to talk about it because I don't want to impose too much of my own um, sort of judgment on these pieces. Um, I'm, of course, uh, much closer emotionally to the Russian language pieces because those are the ones that I I translated and worked on. And when you translate a text, you you know you really live in it. You read it so closely. You really um, it's like method acting. You kind of feel as if you're in that text uh, very deeply for a while. Um, and I never got to experience the Kazakh language texts the same way. Um, so my, my co-translator, co-editor, Zare Vataiba, was responsible for the Kazakh uh, translations, and she did a wonderful job. And she also um, selected, I think, all the pieces in the anthology. So it's Zare's, uh eye for um, interesting writing that um, is really responsible for how um, Amunat turned out in the end. Um, in her translations of the Kazakh ones, she found some, uh, some humorous pieces, which I really appreciate, like... Um, uh, Jumagol Sultis *Romeo and Juliet*, which is which opens our anthology, is this very funny, um, almost slapstick piece about old people in a Kazakh village um, slapping together a, a production of *Romeo and Juliet* half in Kazakh for some foreign visitors, um, with old um, romantic entanglements coming to light at the end on stage, and it's like it's very funny. And we don't think about you were saying, um, uh, you know, Central Asia seems so far away. We don't read Central Asian literature in in Europe and the United States. Um, but I think it's, it was really a nice trick to bring not only any old Central Asian literature, but funny Central Asian literature to light here. I mean, I think it really helps to make uh, that distant location, that distant culture, more relatable and and more you know normal theming to us uh, non Central
1: Asian readers. And and on that topic, how did you collect it? I how did you select it? Um, which pieces? You will translate
0: um also as i was saying zare uh, was kind of the scout uh, for the collection she actually approached me before Amanat existed um, with just a couple stories um, one of her own um this best computer which i've already read from um and a, a novella called um, the nanny which we excerpted for Amanat in for the uh story that we call hunger um, so we worked on just those three pieces at first. Um, we were able to publish them in Words Without Borders, which is um, a great uh, online organiz- um, organization that publishes lots of um, literature and translation from all over the world. Um, and once we had done that much together, we really wanted to keep working together. And so, says, you know, there are lots of other good Kazakhstani writers out there who have never been translated, who need to be wider read. Um, so she started gathering things like that, and bit by bit, we translated them um, from both languages. Um, and we had enough for an anthology, we started um, kind of promoting that to publishers and um, hoping somebody would, would take us up on it. Um, but we wanted to make um, an even mix of um, stories originally written in Kazakh and stories originally written in English. We wanted to make sure there was some uh, outright fiction and some nonfiction. So we have very serious stories, very humorous stories. We also cover a lot of the history of Kazakhstan. So we have uh, stories from Stalinist time. We have stories about people thinking back to um, different points in in Kazakhstani history, like the best can and like um Asa stories as well. Um, so we tried to cover a lot of history, a lot of different personalities, a lot of ethnic groups. Um, we even have one book that's written from the point of view of a man, one story that is <laughs> for a little variety since this is a such a you know a female-centric collection. So we just hope to find, um, you know, a good selection. We don't think it's, you know, comprehensive. Obviously, there's a lot more out there, but we can't fit everything into one thin book. But hopefully this is just the first collection of Kazakhstani literature, and there will be more and more.
1: Hopefully, yes. And and also on, on this thing that that is... Um, a female collection? Obviously, when one is a little bit familiar to Kazakh literature, the first thing we think about is um, Pustabaya, uh, the, the Path of Abai and, and things like that, that are really huge. And even in, in Kazakhstan, people will tell you, oh yeah, you have to, this is the one you have to read, absolutely. Uh, so why and how did you end up choosing all um, female writers
0: Oh, I think um, this is something that comes up a lot in, in translation, translation in general, and translated literature. Um, just that women are just underrepresented as writers in translation, in general, but also in translation. Um, and while everyone knows Abai, he also wrote a very long time ago. His whole life is kind of shrouded in, in mystery and myth. But there are real, um, real live, breathing people writing right now in Kazakhstan about recent uh, Kazakh history about, uh, you know, society right now as it is. And we thought that would be interesting in a new way to readers outside of Kazakhstan. In a way, and it might be too ambitious to say, but we also wanted to make sure we could help these writers introduce themselves to each other. Um, Until fairly recently, there was a divide in Kazakhstani, the Kazakhstani literary world between Kazakh speakers and Russian speakers. They didn't often read each other's work. Um, review each other's work that kind of thing Um, so by putting uh, a selection of really excellent pieces from both of those spheres together in one book in English we kind of hoped we could bring these authors together to meet on sort of neutral ground in the English language um, um, and kind of uh, get them more interested in in each other and of course you know one anthology can't do that on its own there's other positive developments in that direction in Kazakhstan right now to more mutual journals conferences and things that bring Writers from the different language groups together, which is really exciting to see.
1: That's that's really interesting. And also, I, I was wondering if it was hard for you to pitch the anthology to to publishing houses.
0: Well, we were really happy to get such an enthusiastic response from her eventual publisher, um, from Gaudi Boy. Um, Gaudi Boy is a, specializes in Singaporean literature, um, which uh, you know I've never thought about Singapore and Kazakhstan in the same. Uh, Sentence before, but um, the, the editor there was very interested in Kazakhstan as an Asian country um, from the larger Asian world, which is great. Um, in a way, uh, it was really refreshing for us to work with them, partly because uh, Gaudi Boy is not part of the kind of post Soviet literary landscape. Um, it's not, doesn't have this kind of Russo centric Soviet uh, focus that a lot of other publishers who might have considered the book have. Um, So again, we're looking for a kind of a neutral ground, not too Russian, not too Kazakh. So Singapore, you know, why not? (laughs) Um, And they've done a great job. Uh, Editing was a pleasure to work with them, marketing the book. Um, So yeah, it's been a very great relationship so far. It wasn't easy. It took us a while to find a publisher who was interested, who was willing to look at it and didn't, I think, just dismiss Kazakhstan as something a little bit too far away, a little bit too strange for them.
1: Uh, and speaking of editing, how did you choose the title of your book? Ah,
0: Amanat. So, um, Amanat is a Kazakh word, but not only a Kazakh word. I've learned since it exists in lots of um, sort of Asian and kind of Islamic influenced languages. Um, Amanat is the story of the the title of one of the stories in our book about um, a mother's um, impossible demand on her on her deathbed. And she wants her children to ensure that. Um, her youngest son doesn't marry his Russian girlfriend. She's a Kazakh. She wants him to have a nice Kazakh girl. Um, so uh, she she says, I have an Amanat. And an amanat is something, a uh, promise that must be kept. Um, it could be a physical object, like an heirloom handed down to be cherished with the generations. It could be an immaterial thing, like a promise. Um, so this book, we um, told each other, is uh, our our. You know, trying to carry out an homage for these writers, for everything that they represent, everything they've chronicled, um, and convey it to the, the wider world.
1: And and you seem to have a really specific relationship with the with the writers themselves. I was wondering. I'm, I'm not a translator myself. Um, I mean, I, I do, but on on that's uh, it's not professional. Um, and I was wondering if. Um, like, for example, when there is a, a word in Russian and you're not really sure about all the symbolism behind it, do you speak with them about it? Do you speak to, to them how you should translate it in English? Often I do, sure. I mean, the author is the um, the foremost expert
0: on the, the words they've chosen. Um, and often, the, I think very few of the authors in this anthology speak English or speak English very well. So the questions we ask them are not so much about how we should translate this, but, you know, what are you thinking with this word? What are you trying to emphasize? If it's sort of an ambiguous thing, are you looking at this side or that side of the meaning? And then we that gives us clues as to how to best translate it into English. The trick about um, talking with authors as a translator is that you don't want to ask them too many questions or they might start to doubt that you know what you're doing. So you have to do a little bit of research on your own and save um, the author questions for um you know the really profound ones that will make you seem more intelligent I think like
1: <laughs> yeah but it's also kind of a way to have the backstory of of the piece itself
0: sure yeah I read it um when I read it to translate I'm I'm only one reader of course with my own interpretation other readers will have other interpretations um but your responsibility as a translator is to make sure you don't um, neglect other possible interpretations of a story, right? So make sure the translation encompasses all sort of possible meanings, or at least the most obvious possible meanings. And the author can give you some clues as to what you might be missing in your own reading of the text. Um, so you can uh, refine that a little bit. It's a great experience talking with, um, you know, a writer, um, somebody with a uh, such a great, you know, creative mind, and then just trying to live in their brains a little bit and replicate their thinking and their creativity in, in the new language.
1: And and do you do you work in Tim in terms of translation? So, for example, do you um, give your first draft of translation to um, to Zauri and then she read it and give you feedbacks? Yes, for this book, we did exactly that. Um, so we each translated
0: um, from uh you know one language or the other into english and then um swapped pieces um um, and helped uh answer questions uh polish the style up and so on in english um was a good source of of knowledge about you know the background individual phrases and things especially all the kazakh phrases that show up in even in the national language stories um and then she's uh her english is, is wonderful um but I was able to help her with a couple turns of phrase and so on. Um, So in the end, I think we had the best possible results uh, because of that teamwork, yeah.
1: Yeah, and what was really nice to actually, when when you you read the book, is that you really feel like you travel a little bit. Um, Like you, especially when you know um, a little bit, at least, of Kazakhstan, Um, you really can see, what is going on? Good. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, I thought, you know, maybe the ideal reader for Amanat is somebody who does know a little bit already about Kazakhstan or about Central Asia. Um, but I hope that it's accessible also to people who don't know anything, who have never thought about the place before. It's hard to judge, of course. Um, but I hope that many readers would find something
1: interesting in there, something they can relate to. And do you projects to, to translate it to other languages? Not yet. Although I have been
0: asked, I think on social media somebody asked if there's a plan to translate the whole thing into Kazakh or into Russian, um, which would be fantastic. Um, that's not a, a job for me, but um, maybe one of these authors will 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 take it on, um, and that would be great to have, uh, you know, three different language versions of our collection.
1: Especially or other, as other you... languages too, maybe French one day. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Uh, no, but especially as you were saying that your goal was also to. Um mix those two words to to make the Russian and the Kazakh writers speak to each other. exactly. yeah, so that, that, yeah that that will be really amazing. And um, yeah, I was wondering if you have any numerous plans, projects uh... plans well. I have two
0: books lined up right now. Um, I've got one novel from Kyrgyzstan, uh, which is a really kind of fantastical. Uh, piece about people wandering the desert. Um, I'm going to start that actually this week. I'm excited about that. And then um, Hamida love has a new book too. He's the Uzbek author who I, I started working with initially. He is still writing all the time and all his work is wonderful. So I'll be working on one of his novels um, later this year, uh, next year, I suppose, as well. So um, hopefully, bit by bit, we'll build up a huge uh, library of Central Asian literature and English translation and that place won't seem so far away and, and uh, mysterious anymore. That's my goal.
1: That that sounds great. You sound also quite busy. A lot of things to translate, to, to, to do, and and to share with the world. Um, thank, thanks a lot for joining us today. It was a, a great pleasure, really, uh, to to meet you, to speak with you. Um, and well, for all for our listeners, um, you can find Amanat. Uh, women's writing from Kazakhstan in your bookshop and in North America and Southeast Asia, if I'm right, Um, as well as on Amazon, if you live in other parts of the world uh, and you can't reach bookshops in in the US or in Asia. Uh, Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. I hope everyone enjoys reading the book.